The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. The Gospel of the Lord. What is the greatest evil of our day? Certainly, there can be made arguments for many different things, uh, many different happenings. And in our multi-religious culture, in our uh, secular culture as a whole, as a culture of the United States, as a culture of the world, I think that it's difficult for, for us to really decide as a whole what the greatest evil is to work to defeat or to take out, right? But I think the thing that probably is most common, commonly put as the greatest evil in our world today, is suffering. Now, suffering, we, we, we see it, right? We see people who are dying of cancer, who people are dying of hunger. Um, and all these different sufferings of mental illnesses and others... We look and we see this as a great evil, and, and certainly it is. But as Christians, suffering is not the greatest evil that we encounter in the world. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, in his proof, uh, he wrote a big, huge book called Summa Theologica, and, and in it he, he posits different questions, and he always offered at least three objections to his, to his thought and reasoning. But with the question of, does God exist, he was only able to come up with two good uh, oppositions to God. The first one was that he wasn't needed, that everything could be explained without him. And I think that's probably the most common attitude to those who don't come to church or don't believe in God. It's not that they outright disagree or don't think that God exists. They're more theists. They're saying, well, God doesn't, I don't really know what he does. And, and certainly the proof that says, well, God's not needed, therefore he doesn't exist, isn't really logical. It doesn't really disprove God's existence. It just means that we don't know whether he exists or not. The second opposition to whether God exists which I think is a little bit more robust and we should be aware of very clearly, is the problem of suffering. Is there suffering in the world? Now this objection I think is most common with militant atheists, people who really push atheistic uh, and try to drive religion out of the public sphere or anything else. They might say that their reason for doing that is completely logical and philosophical, But if you hear about their life, if you learn about them, most of them have had encounters with suffering so deep that they uh, either say that God cannot exist with this suffering 
or if God does exist, but he allows this suffering to happen and causes it, then I don't want to be any part of that God, and that is an evil God. Now, we need to be aware of that because we need to make sure that our attitude towards suffering doesn't help fuel that, right? We, as Christians, thankfully, actually have a response to suffering in the world. I'm not quite sure how other religions deal with the problem of suffering, but we as Christians actually have an amazing response to suffering. Now, when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and walked among us, right, that's where we really get to see the heart of who God the Father is. And Jesus Christ, as he worked in his public ministry, went around and physically healed people, right? He alleviated suffering. He cured people's blindness, which you can only imagine how much suffering that causes. He healed people who were lepers, who were outcasts. He also raised people from the dead, right? He raised a young girl. He raised Lazarus. He not only alleviated their suffering, but he helped the suffering of those who were grieving because of their loss. And so we can say, well, look, God wants to take away all suffering from us. But that would be a misapplication of what actually happened. Jesus Christ did come and alleviate certain sufferings. But he did not heal every single leper in Israel during his time. He did not heal every single blind person. He did not raise every single person who died back from the dead. He did it to some, in particular situations, and others, he left. Why? Is that because he doesn't care about suffering? Jesus could have stayed on this earth and continued to heal everyone and continued to walk and and take care of all the suffering, not only in Israel, but the entire world, and then stuck around to heal any sufferings that we might have. But he didn't. Instead, what we have from the example of Jesus Christ, that suffering is a consequence of sin, but Jesus Christ came to cure us of that sin, and he could have, at least we can imagine, a scenario where he comes and he takes away suffering from us. But instead, what we see him truly do is instead of taking the suffering away from us, is he actually enters into that suffering with us and redeems it. He willingly lays down his life and is unjustly arrested, beaten, scourged, carries his cross and suffers and dies on the cross in the worst imaginable death. Why? Well, we could imagine a better way if we were saviors to fix the world, right? But we're not God. And God sees suffering not as the greatest evil in the world, but he sent his son Jesus Christ so that suffering might actually be redeemed. And so that suffering, a consequence of sin, that uh, is a human experience, might actually be transformed into something supernatural. Because Jesus Christ has participated in it and redeemed it and made it something not just meaningless, 
not just something to get through and avoid at all costs, but actually something that can unite us to Christ and help redeem the world. With that type of an understanding, we don't need to go out and and seek suffering, right? In the sense of like going around and breaking our bones, like, oh, that's really great. How great is this? You know, or blind ourselves, right? No, no, no. That's not the type of suffering that we go. We have enough suffering right in front of us. But I don't know about you, but often with my suffering, I, instead of uniting it to Christ, right, offering it up, instead, I often become impatient, more selfish, and more turned in on self, right? And wanting the suffering to just be taken from me, right? But we have an example here, of course, of Jesus Christ, but also in the early church of St. Paul, who we hear in the second reading gives his response, his understanding of that participation in suffering that Jesus Christ has redeemed for him. He says, not that I seek to avoid all sufferings, right? That Jesus Christ came to free us from suffering. But he actually says, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my affliction. Now, it's not because he loved suffering qua suffering, like suffering in and of itself of just suffering. But he says, I rejoice in my suffering because in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. He sees that his suffering actually has meaning actually is redeemed and actually can be used not only for the development of his character, but also for the salvation of those around him. That his suffering, when he unites it with Christ, actually transforms the world. Now, we can think about that, and and we can't really think of too many areas of suffering where that that clearly happens. But I think of one form of suffering uh, that really, I think, connects with this rejoicing. I think it's the suffering of childbirth. Now, I myself obviously have no idea what that's like. But I can only imagine, and I hear, that childbirth is very painful. And if pain, suffering, was the greatest evil, then we should actually avoid pregnancy and childbirth, right? But instead we see, actually, the suffering, the affliction that comes with childbirth, not something that we seek in and of itself, but something that we can rejoice in, because of the life that it gives. And then, of course, after childbirth, that's just the start of suffering as parents, right? <laughs> right? Parents don't exactly look forward to waking up in the middle of the night for no reason whatsoever, but they can rejoice and at least have some consolation in getting no sleep during the night, waking up and having to change a diaper and smell that, and having to, uh, having to feed as something that they can rejoice in because it has meaning and purpose, not just in their life, but also in their child's life, and actually allows them to love them more. We can not only take those areas of suffering that directly link to a specific action, but any form of suffering whether it is suffering because of some stupidity of ourselves, like taking a bike and jumping, you know, doing a giant jump and breaking our arm, or whether it's something that's caused by somebody else, uh, whether it's, you know, just something, something random, or whether it's a mental illness, 
or whether it's a chronic disease, or whether it's some sort of virus or sickness or cancer, we can actually take every form of suffering in the body and actually allow that to be united to Christ. Now, what does that do? Many people would say that it does absolutely nothing. The only thing that that can help do is for ourselves. But St. Paul is not saying rejoice in your suffering because it just makes you holier. He actually says he's able to rejoice because he completes what's lacking in Christ's affliction, in Christ's sacrifice. But what's lacking in Christ's sacrifice? And in other parts, St. Paul speaks about it and Scripture speaks about Christ's sacrifice being perfect. Perfect in every way, and thus the perfect sacrifice, and that no more sacrifices need to be offered. And so why would we offer a sacrifice if Jesus' sacrifice is already perfect? And in fact, this scripture, I think, more than almost any other scripture, confounds non-Catholics especially our Protestant brothers and sisters who do an amazing job of living out the Christian faith, do not, cannot understand this because of certain theological problems with it. But we as Catholics can actually understand that. Because we have a distinction. We understand that Christ's sacrifice was perfect, but it is still lacking. In what way? Well, the example that I'll give is that you ha- if you have a nugget of pure gold, it can be perfect Pure gold, right? A nugget where it has no imperfections, where it is pure gold and perfect as gold. But yet we can see that that gold nugget would be better if it was bigger, right? If it was a bigger gold piece, it would be even better. Even though that that individual piece is perfect. We see the same way with Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is absolutely perfect and the only sacrifice that is needed for our redemption. But it is still lacking in our participation. We see that with the holy sacrifice of the Mass, that we actually say that this is a participation in the one sacrifice, that we actually keep on celebrating the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And our Protestant brothers and sisters and other people might say, that's crazy. Because look in Scripture, it says that Christ's sacrifice was perfect. So why would you offer it again? It's already been offered. It's perfect. Yes, it is. But it is lacking in our participation. It is lacking in the fact that we ourselves have not fully become one with Christ. And one of the greatest examples is that, is that when we suffer, we turn in on self. Instead of, as Jesus Christ did, that offers it up and actually offers it all in love. And continues to not focus on self, but actually forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He looks out for his mother while he's dying on the cross and he prays to God the Father. We ourselves are called to that type of encounter with suffering. So that suffering cannot be one of the greatest, uh, ex- or one of the greatest reasons why people disbelieve in God. But actually, one of the greatest opportunities for proving God's love and the truth of Christianity in the world. We have examples of the saints who did this. 
who encountered suffering and lived it out beautifully, who lived it out and encountered people and actually converted them to Christianity by their suffering. May we ourselves also allow our suffering not to be something to be avoided at all costs, as the culture does. One of the greatest examples of that is euthanasia, where they see that the suffering of this person is so useless that you might as well kill the person so that they don't have to suffer that great evil of suffering anymore. We say no. We do not have control over life and death. And we do not see suffering as the greatest evil, but instead see suffering as something that Christ himself entered in to be with us as well. Now, in our life, I know myself, I have not encountered any great suffering. I'm still pretty young, but I know that I will. And so I prepare myself now, during these times when I am not suffering, to be able to hopefully prepare myself for those times when I am suffering. We can encounter, we are called to be witnesses and rejoice in our suffering so that we might make up for the afflictions that are lacking in Christ, so that we might become a saint as well. As Mother Teresa herself suffered greatly, as St. John Paul II, who endured the Nazis, then the Soviet Union in Poland and experienced great atrocities, great evil and great suffering, but yet himself was able to rejoice in suffering even towards the end of his life. May we ourselves not be defeated by suffering, but see that purpose and unite it to Jesus Christ on the cross and in this Eucharist at every Mass and allow it to be that grace that helps lift up Christ's body, His church, for the salvation of the whole world.